0: Grace and peace to you in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As I was reading Moses' epitaph this week, and that's essentially what it is, it's the Old Testament writer's way of saying goodbye to what appears to be a friend, someone who loves Moses deeply. We don't know how close in contact this individual was, but we do know that the individual had a deep love, a deep reverence, and a deep respect for Moses. And I have to admit myself that I always get a little melancholy at these points in the church year. You know, for the past, what, two and a half, three months now, we've been studying the life of Moses, and now we reach a point in the church year where we stop doing that. Moses has died. And so we move on in the church year. And you get this same sense of melancholy, I believe, from the writer today. Now, we don't know who that writer is. Some have said that it was Ezra who wrote Deuteronomy 34. Others have posited that it might have been Samuel. But we don't know. But we do get a sense in the writing that the person loved Moses very much. The writer explains, Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt. Awe, reverence. We also see in the way that the Israelites responded after Moses died. They mourned for 30 days, which was a normal process, but it's particularly noteworthy that the author thought it appropriate to explain that they mourned for 30 days, adding emphasis to this reality. So we have in Moses a person who is loved deeply reverenced, deeply appreciated? Well, I wonder if you've ever had anyone in your own life that you could speak of in that way as well, where they've had such an effect that it just, uh, it just elicited this deep uh, reservoir of passion or love for the individual. I've had such people in lots of areas of my lives. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, there was Mr. Morrill, who was my English teacher. He took a cocky kid who thought he knew everything there was to know about writing, knocked him down several notches, and then built me up and turned me into a much better thinker and writer by the time I was done with that junior year of high school professionally, and sort of an outlook on life in general, there was my dad, who every day put on a flight suit, and I saw him get on a B-52 to go and do whatever dad did that day, but I always knew there was something special about sacrificing for the thing that you love, and I've always carried that sense of the importance of sacrifice in the lives that we lead. And then in a religious context, there was my grandfather, who is a, chi- is a child I only saw maybe once or twice a year, but I knew two things about my grandfather when I saw him. Number one, I was going to be at church every Sunday morning and Sunday evening and on Wednesday evening. And then number two, I knew that first thing when I woke up in the morning, when he woke up in the morning, his nose was going to be buried in his Bible doing a Bible study. And every night before he went to bed, his nose was going to be in that same Bible and doing that same Bible study. Everything for my grandfather revolved around his relationship with Jesus Christ. Those were the examples in my life. I'd be willing to bet that you have some of those examples in your own life. These examples uh, take meaning to us, they mean so much to us because I think we recognize that every single person who lives this example for us, whether it's something that we see or whether it's something that we experience, each of these people have invested something in us and we have invested something in them and that's relationship. Sometimes these people have forced us to grapple with inadequacies in our character or they've called us to be something more than we already are. In all these scenarios, they see something in us or we see something in them that perhaps we don't already see in ourselves. And the best of those people, the ones that we see and admire the most, the most meaningful relationships are where they see something in us and then they pull it. Out of us, they say, "I see this in you. Whatever it is you think you need, whatever you think you value in me, I see this in you, and I'm going to show you how to be this person." And isn't this exactly the example we've had throughout in the life of Moses as we've studied him? Was there anything so great or wonderful about Moses? No, he lived in a noble, uh, a noble sort of environment for many years in, in Pharaoh's courts. But then he also had an ignoble past. He murdered somebody, ran away from it, went into the desert, and he would have been content to live the rest of his life there. But God calls him out and says, No, Moses, that's not what I have for you. You're to go into Egypt. Did Moses see in himself the leadership that he needed to have in order to lead those people out? No, he didn't. He was a stutterer, a stammerer. He was not a good communicator. He wanted somebody else to do the communicating for him. He didn't see it in himself. But God pulled it out of him because God knew, I've got more for you and you're capable of more than what you already are, Moses. And what about Moses and the Israelites? Did the Israelites think, uh, were, were they actualized in their abilities by the time Moses got to them? No. They thought like slaves because they'd been an enslaved people for 400 years. They didn't know what they could be. And so Moses and God, sort of a team effort, are coaxing the Israelites along through the desert, through the wilderness, through the plains. And then they finally get to the promised land. They're finally there. And God takes Moses to the top uh, the, uh, the uh, plains of Nebo. Plains of Moab, pardon me. They get to the plains of Moab. And Moses is standing atop Mount Nebo. And he looks across and he sees where the Israelites are going to be going, and God tells him, Moses, that's not for you. That's not for you. Moses already knew this. God had told him this before. Moses was not going to be going into the promised land. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, and perhaps you can identify with this a little bit, I'm thinking, that's not fair. That is not fair, God why would you take Moses out of what he was doing take him into Egypt make him sacrifice as much as he sacrificed and then when he finally gets to that place say sorry you're not going If it had been me I think I would have been really really upset Just just to set foot in the place would have been enough God says no you're not going So what happens? Moses dies. He receives an honorable funeral, obviously an honorable memorial, and the baton of responsibility is passed on to Joshua. Well, it was at this point in the sermon, uh, earlier in the week, I had planned at this point in the sermon on giving instruction about how important it is to take responsibility in the church. You know, we're at that point where we have to fill offices of responsibility. And so I was going to lay it out there. Hey, look, it's, it's the godly thing where the person trains up the other individual, the younger individual, then that younger individual takes the responsibility. That's what the church should look like. And so I want all of you to volunteer for things, things of that nature. And that's true enough as it is. Obviously, a church has to have people in positions of authority in order to make the church work well. But here's where I was sitting just a few nights ago as I was considering this whole issue at the Old Testament lesson and then comparing it to this plea that I was about to give you in the sermon today to, to find something that you can do in the church, some ministry in the church, uh, and when you're asked to just go and do that, here's where I was sitting. I was sitting behind a bunch of books in my nook uh, in, a, in a dining room nook area that I used to study. I haven't spent any valuable time with my kids in the last month or my wife. I haven't enjoyed any of the fall season for the last month. I haven't done any of the things that truly give my life meaning. The leaves have changed color. They've fallen off the trees. Life is happening. It's going right by me, and I'm not enjoying any of it. And on top of it, a friend of mine, a a former professor, he encouraged me to read a book by Joseph Pieper called Leisure, the Basis of Culture, and I'm hit by these words. At the zenith of the Middle Ages, it was held that sloth and restlessness, the incapacity to enjoy leisure, were all closely connected. Sloth was the source of restlessness, and the ultimate cause of work for work's sake is I'm sitting behind my books, watching these leaves fall, watching my wife and kids leave to go out and do another thing that I'm not present with them doing. I sit there, I get mad, and I think, what am I doing with my life? And why am I doing it? Why am I so busy? Why have I allowed my life to be directed at me instead of taking control of my life and saying there are things more important than these goals that I put in front of my face all the time? Half of them not even making sense. Where does it all lead for me? Ordination? Sure. But why do I want ordination? So I can already be a pastor. So I can be a pastor. (laughs) I'm already a pastor. So why have I created for myself this life of constant work Constant distraction. Well, if Pieper's right, and I suspect he is, it's because I really don't want to come face-to-face with God because that means he might give my life meaning in areas that I'm not ready for him to show me where the meaning is. Maybe I want the meaning to be what I dictate the meaning is rather than allowing God to communicate meaning to me. And I know enough of you to know that there are a whole bunch of you in precisely that same scenario. You run around crazy, like a chicken with your head cut off, and you don't even know why you're doing it or what you're getting at. Well, here's a clue for all of us. Our lives, the meaning of life is simple. It's not the goals we set. It has nothing to do with the goals we set. Jesus gives us that meaning in today's gospel lesson, and it is a simple message. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the amazing thing about God's message is it is so counterintuitive to the way that we live sometimes. It just turns everything on its head and it says, you're looking at the world all wrong. He's telling the teachers of the law here, you can't work hard enough. You can't do enough things to merit God's love. You can't do enough things in order to see the world right. What does he tell them? Simple message. Love God. Love God. And once you have that drilled into your heart, love the world around you. It's a simple message. Everything else in our lives should run second to that. And all too often it doesn't. We get busy. We get chaotic. Because ultimately, we're spiritually Lazy, slothful. We allow those other things to creep in because we allow ourselves to not be spiritually disciplined people. When we stop praying... When we stop reading the scriptures, when we stop doing the things that keep us connected to God, then it allows everything else to come in and say this has more meaning than the relationship with God. If you're right in your relationship with God, what do you think is going to take more precedence? Your next promotion or your kid's ball game? What's going to take more precedence in your life? what your friends think of what you're wearing, what you're driving, or the kind of house you live in, or the fact that you haven't talked to your wife in a while, and maybe she might want to know that she has a spouse that she can communicate with. That is why you got married. That is why you had kids. You see, what God does is he says, all these other priorities, they don't matter. They're not the main thing. I'm the main thing. You keep me as the main thing, and I'll show you how to relate to everything else in your life. But if we get lazy, if we get spiritually lazy, if we get slothful, we stop listening to the voice of God and we let every other voice in the world tell us, this is what you need to be, this is what you need to do in order to have meaning. It's a lie. Our meaning doesn't come from anybody other than God. And our activity should reflect the life of God in us. You know what this looks like in the church? This is a very simple church formula. I'm not going to tell you what committee, what team, what ministry, whatever it is that you need to be on. What it means is this. If you're not spiritually slothful, if you're not spiritually lazy, and you are connected to God on a daily basis, God is going to tell you this is what you need to be doing to serve the church. You see, you are all ministers. You all have the ability for ministry apart from what I say needs to get done as a function of the church. Your ability comes directly from your identity as a child of God. And so what I would rather have, instead of asking people and coming up to them and saying, will you please serve in this function, you know what what I'd rather have? I'd rather have two fired up people serving in one ministry than to have a team of five to seven people who are simply serving in that ministry just because, well, it's something that needs to be done. And there are things that need to be done, things that aren't fun. But God can even give us a passion for those things that aren't fun if we're listening to God. How many of us crowd out the voice of God with activities, with work for work's sake? No, Work should be done in a godly manner, with a godly purpose, and that includes all work. The work that you do inside the church and the work you do outside the church. So friends, I want you focused on what God wants you to do. And what I'm really saying when I say that, love God, and then let the love that God has created in your heart manifest itself in the work that you do in the church, for your neighbor, in everything in life. See, God doesn't call us just to fill positions. He calls us to ministry. I want people in this church plugged into something that is truly an extension of who they are. You know, I suspect that this perspective is the reason that Moses didn't, Get upset or out of joint when God tells him again, and for the last time, Moses, you're not going over. You see, the promised land, it it was sort of a secondary thing to Moses. The promised land was God's goal, and so it was an important goal. But I suspect that what Moses learned to do is recognize that there's more value in the journey than there is even in the goal. You can't control the part about what happens when the goal comes. All you can do is control your realm of influence as guided by God to include the people around you. Moses learned that the promised land was the kingdom of God living in him and around him. The promised land was being loved by God responding to that love, and then loving the people around him to take them to where they're going. That was the promised land. The promised land was the relationship, the relationships, and Moses had that. You know, a lot of times we talk about bringing the kingdom of God crashing into the here and now, and that's how I see Moses. They were headed to a promised land. They saw it as future, but Moses saw it as present because he was so connected to God that there was no sense of future. (laughs) There was a future, but there was also the future already come in the present. The kingdom of God is among us in the church. The kingdom of God was with Moses, and that's why he was able to die with serenity. He'd done his job. He'd done what God called him to do. I want to encourage you today don't be so focused on goals that you forget relationships. In particular, don't be so focused on goals that you forget the relationship that gives all goals meaning. You can have the best laid plans. But if those plans aren't God's, they're not worth anything. If God has something for you, it's best to follow that. Worry less about the goal. Worry more about the journey. Don't confuse chaotic activity for faithfulness. True faithfulness knows God's purpose. And God's purpose always includes time spent with him, first of all, And second, time with the people we love. And don't let anybody tell you what your goal should be. Don't let me tell you what your goal should be. The only thing that I can tell you is that God loves you. Love him back. Spend time with God. Beyond that, you have to take your direction from God. And moms and dads, this is coming directly at you. If that direction doesn't include a whole bunch of time with your spouse, with your kids, it's not coming from God. Somebody else, whether it's you or someone else in your immediate circle, is giving you a false image of what it means to be a child of God. Your family is more important than the activities that you think are important that you're filling your time up with work for work's sake. Friends, the promised land isn't about land. It wasn't for Moses. It isn't for us. It's about being loved by God, loving him back, and then loving each other. Love God. Love your neighbor. And you already have the promised land. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you've given us more than just land. You've given us a kingdom. That kingdom is you, that kingdom is Jesus Christ, and you promise that wherever we seek you, we'll already have that kingdom. So Father, I pray that as a church and as friends, as people who live relationally, that you would help us to see that it's not the goals that we're setting that are important. It's how we're getting there, by relating to one another, by relating principally to you, and then letting everything else flow from that. And so help us to be a people who see you first and everything else as a consequence, as a result of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.